The reading today is from Luke, uh, chapter 13, beginning at verse 22, and the title in the Bible here is The Narrow Door. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray that God would speak to us through his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you they contain truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we pray that today you would speak truth into our lives. Give us ears that will hear. Come and help me as I speak to proclaim you faithfully and come by your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know if you've got access to a Bible um, through a phone or a tablet or something, but it would be very helpful if you could have Luke chapter 13, verse 22 accessible to you. And even if we just had the beginning of a reading back up on the screen, that would be, that'd be good. I I've entitled this sermon, The Narrow Door and the Path of Life. The Narrow Door and the Path of Life. We're doing a sermon series on the parables and this is a very strange blunt and in some ways straightforward parable but I'm going to begin with a story and it's not a true story a, a story about a Frenchman who goes to see his doctor one afternoon and uh, as he sits down in front of the doctor for a consultation he says doctor I want to live to be a hundred. And the doctor looks up and says, absolutely no problem, whatever. And the man says, really? And he says, yes, yes, honestly. This is, I'll tell you what you, you have to do from today and you will live to be a hundred. 
so the patient was all ears. And he said, well, this, this is what you have to do. You have to follow my instructions to the letter every single day, and it's the same routine every single day. You must get out of bed at 7 o'clock in the morning, not, no earlier, no later. And uh, you can have a shower or a bath if you want, and then you can have breakfast, and breakfast is a light meal. It, it might be uh, fruit, it might be porridge, it might be cereal, but no sugar, no jam, and a slice of plain toast perhaps, no coffee, no tea, no caffeine, uh, hot water to drink or cold water to drink, glass of milk, and then you spend the rest of the morning reading or sitting in a chair resting. You have a light lunch every day, bowl of soup perhaps, lettuce, um, something like water only to drink, an afternoon nap, a short constitutional around the block, the rest of the afternoon just as in the morning, in the evening, no wine, water to drink, small nutritious dinner, bed and lights out by 9.30, and you do this every single day of your life. And uh, the man looked up and he said, oh, I'm rather deflated, uh, and if I do this, will I really live to be 100? And the doctor says, no, not really, but you'll feel as if you have. <laughs> and the thing that that story was meant to do, apart from make you laugh, is to realize there are some situations, there are some situations in which we tell people what they want to hear rather than the truth. Because we fear that to speak truth to them will bring pain. And so we avoid it. And I think there's no area where we do this more often than in issues of life and death. And I've got lots of illustrations of this, but two, two come to my mind. One is when I was doing my theological training and I spent some time just trailing in, in the shadow of a hospital chaplain. And we were visiting someone, we were by the bedside of someone who was clearly extraordinarily sick. And I, I don't know precisely what was wrong with them, but they didn't have very long to live, that was obvious. And they said, the patient said to the chaplain, um, I'm going on a long mystery journey. And the chaplain said, well, the chaplain agreed. And as I stood in the wings just watching this, I seriously disagreed with what the chaplain said, but I did understand why he reacted as he did, and so do you understand why. Because to speak truth would have been so painful, potentially, it was just better to duck the subject, easier anyway to duck the subject. And all of us have become seriously muddled, quiet, shy about the future that faces us, especially in the face of death. Or another example that, that sticks in my mind was when I actually was at a selection conference um, to see whether I would, it was discerned whether I would be acceptable material to start training for ordination. And there was a group of us, we went off to this residential conference, and part of the selection procedure in small groups was uh, there were a whole lot of topics in a hat, and one of you had, you pulled out a, a topic from the hat and you had to lead a discussion about it and there were people sitting outside the circle watching what was going on. And I remember distinctly that a topic someone pulled out of a hat was this question, who gets to heaven and why? 
And listening to the answers of my fellow candidates, I, I couldn't help reflecting inwardly that um, they were totally baffled by this question and they weren't wanting to give a straightforward answer. You might just as well have asked them, how do you get to the South Pole and why? And they would have had more of a clue. And again, I thought this was rather strange because for a topic this important, what happens when you die, what do you do for eternal life, surely is such an important topic, we need crystal clarity. Ambiguity isn't a great help to us. And Jesus is not evasive when speaking about this topic, as this parable will show. Jesus speaks with crystal clear clarity. Now, even as this parable was read to us by Michael just now, I, I'm sure, I'm sure the thrust of it uh, struck you. And probably it struck you, well, this is very blunt, and uh, this is very, very, very challenging. It is headed in our Bibles, the narrow door. And, and if I just yank from it the obvious points before going through them, it is teaching us about judgment, isn't it? It is telling us that some people are excluded from the presence of God. It is telling us that our time is short. And this is generally not what we want to hear. I, I think, it, having highlighted these points, it, it's just worth me um, reading a parable again. I, I've had weeks to study it. You've just only heard it once. So let, let me read it again. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of a house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside and knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you'll say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first will be last. Now, I want to say, as we sort of brace ourselves to scrutinize this story, we need to have a couple of things in mind, at least. The first is this. Jesus is the gold standard of truth. As he said, my word is truth. He never spoke a lie. That's why we have the phrase, gospel truth. Now, this doesn't make his teaching easy reading, but it does make it reliable. And secondly, I think we need to know that when you know the truth, and only when you know the truth, are you in a good position to make excellent life choices in the light of it. Furnished with the truth, you can align your life to live it well. Now, this parable springs from Jesus being asked a question in verse 23. And the question is this, Lord, 
Are only a few people going to be saved? Are only a few people going to be saved? And to us, I think that sounds rather a strange question. But to the inquirer, and evidently to Jesus, it was a pretty straightforward question. And probably the reason is this, because there is a theme that runs both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of a messianic banquet. If you want to see a description of this later on when you get home, you could read Isaiah chapter 25, and this spells out the hope of a great feast and uh, a banquet with the Messiah at the head of a table for those who have been saved. So the question that's asked, in a way, is a statistical question. Are many saved or just a few? And it, it, viewed like that, it's a detached question. It, it sounds a harmless question. It sounds a rather remote question. And Jesus could have just said, oh yeah, many. Or he could have just said, few. And we could have moved on. But I think that Jesus saw behind the question. And the question behind the question from the questioner is this. Am I heading for salvation or not? Am I heading for salvation or not? And at this point, it becomes far from detached. It's a very personal question. And I'm going to extract, we're going to see now five truths that come from this parable. And some are hard to hear, but all are essential to know. Here's the first one. The road of salvation requires effort. The road to salvation requires effort. It's often tough, challenging, demanding, and we don't get there casually, accidentally, or on autopilot. And all this is said for us in verse 24. The very first thing that Jesus says is make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Or an excellent word in one translation is strive. And as more than one commentator points out, Jesus doesn't downplay the challenge or the cost of choosing to follow him. It involves picking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following him. Yes, eternal life is a gift. Yes, it is received by grace. We don't deserve it, but we're given it. But the Christian life is not a stroll. It's a struggle. At the same time, it's fulfilling. It's life to the full. It's gratifying. And it ends well. And it impacts other people for good. But it's hard work. Perhaps an illustration will help here of what Jesus is saying. If you're musical or athletic or artistic or intelligent, it's a gift, it's a talent. You, you've received that free, you didn't do anything to deserve it, it it's just discovered it, it's innate in you, you have that ability, God's given it to you. Uh, some people are tone deaf, others have perfect pitch. Uh, if you've got perfect pitch, it's a tremendous advantage. If you're athletic, it's a tremendous advantage. But whatever gift you've been given, it will still take graft and work and sacrifice and effort to bring it to fruition. There are many people who are parents in this church and they're dedicating a lot of effort and work for their children to thrive with their piano lessons, trumpet lessons, bagpipe lessons, whatever it is. Uh, 
And the same with sports stars. You know they're practice, 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 practice. And the same with anything, really, in business, in acting, in medicine. To develop a, a gift takes effort. And it's no different with our faith. The faith that you have in Jesus Christ is a gift, but it's going to take persistence and effort and focus to get through that narrow door. That's why Jesus says, make every effort. That's the first point. Here's the second one. It's through this door or not at all. It's through this door or not at all. And here Jesus' teaching is very, very clear. The entrance to salvation is a narrow door. And when it's shut, the path to salvation is closed and some are left outside. And because of this teaching, we can't say, it's not open to us to say, all are saved. And we can't say all religions are the same or of equal validity. And we can't say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Because the trouble is you can be sincerely wrong. And Jesus is saying in this story, it's through this door or not at all. When I was uh, studying in Oxford, I occasionally went to debates. And in the debating chamber there, at the end of a debate, when it was all over, uh, the way you uh, expressed your vote was you left the room and you went through one of two doors. And one was yes and the other was no. You either were for or against the motion. And as far as I could see, unless you stayed in, in that building all night, there was no way of expressing anything else. And, and frankly, it's uncomfortably true. You know if you've walked through that narrow door or not. You know if you believe that Jesus Christ is the one way into God's company of salvation or not. Now, I know that this teaching is incredibly countercultural, and, and I know that it's going to rub some people up the wrong way. They wish Jesus had sense, said something different. But it's not within our authority to rewrite the words of Jesus and cross out the bits we don't like and, and just change them to suit us. It's within our authority to bend under what he says and, says and say, I'll align my life with what you're saying. And his third point in the story, we don't have forever to make our mind up. Once the door closes, time's up. You can't read this story without it hitting us in the face. There's a decisive moment when this door shuts. And that speaks to me of the urgency both in making up our own minds, but also in telling other people of this situation. And of course, we can't read this story without seeing some people are on the wrong side of a door. In other words, not everyone is saved. It's not comfortable, is it? But if it's the truth, we need to hear it. You know, I, I heard a story once about uh, one of these old-fashioned aeroplanes, which was uh, powered by four different engines, propeller engines. And on this particular flight, there was a kind of cough and spluttering, and they looked out of the window and... and one of the propellers stopped working, and the pilot came over on the intercom and said, I'm so sorry, but one engine down, I'm afraid we're going to be 30 minutes late in landing. A little while later, there's another cough and splutter, and another one of the engines has gone down, and the pilot said, I'm so sorry, another of, of our engines has malfunctioned. I'm afraid we're going to be an hour 
late in landing. At which point, some wag at the back of the plane says, well, I hope the, another engine doesn't go down or else we're going to be up here all night. And, and, and of course, uh, that's very nice to think about, but it doesn't really add up. And, and Jesus' teaching may not be what we want to hear, but if it's the truth, we need to hear it. That's what I'm trying to say. And the fourth point from this parable is this. Salvation isn't in statistics. You need to know the person talking, Jesus. It's not statistics how many are saved. It's Jesus through whom you're saved. As Jesus says in this parable, the owner of the house gets up and closes the door and they say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. And it's, it's that little phrase, you taught in our streets, which helps us to see it is a Jesus-centered parable. He is the door. And actually that phrase which says, we ate and drank with you, it's not really saying we ate and drank at the same table with you, it's saying in your vicinity. We were close enough to hear what you said, but we didn't decide for you, as it were. And this isn't the only place that Jesus calls himself a door, is it? You're probably more familiar with John chapter 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Or again in John 14, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's certainly what Jesus believed. It's certainly what the disciples understood to be the case and what they proclaimed. And lastly, as far as the points are concerned, like many parables, this parable ends with a sting in the tail. Actually, it's got two stings in the tail. It's got a very surprising ending. And, and this is... This is it. Sting number one, not everyone is saved. The door shuts and some people are on the wrong side of it. Sting number two, those who are saved are not the people you'd expect. And I feel sure to the Pharisees and to many of the Jewish listeners, the point Jesus is making here is revolutionary and difficult for them to process is that many people will be included in this feast from the east and the west and the north and the south. And they're not the people you expect. They're, they're not even Jewish people. They're Gentile people. So taking stock of what Jesus has said and what we've seen, let's just recap. The road of those who are saved is hard work and demands effort. The entrance is narrow, and in fact, it's just through him. There's a limited time to make a decision. The door will close. And knowing about Jesus is not enough. Obeying him and being in relationship with him is what counts. And there's unpredictability about who's in and who's out. Now, you've heard all that. What are we going to take away from this? What's going to change as a result? Well, to my mind, this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. God's final judgment of us will happen. 
In former generations, in other times, the idea and concept that we would come before the judgment seat of God did definitely create a sense of right fear of a final judgment, and it was a motivation to turn to God. And it led some to repentance. But today, more commonly perhaps, we rearrange the letters in the word repent, and we add one more, and we turn it into pretend. Let's just pretend it's not going to happen. Let's just pretend there is no accounting to God for our lives that will take place. Now, you could do that with credibility had not Jesus spoken to the contrary. And as I said at the beginning, he is the gold standard of truth, promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And simply pretending won't help us on the last day. It's like a student who pretends that his final exams aren't going to happen. They will, and you'll be found out. And if we consider ourselves Bible believers, then we need to realize that if we try and airbrush the whole area of judgment and accountability before God out of the Bible, then we're majorly editing Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching and the writer to the letter of the Hebrews, and we're ripping out very large sections of Scripture. And secondly, if we airbrush away judgment, then you've removed justice from the heart of God. And you and I have got no right to do that. And you wouldn't really want to do that either, because we all want justice. Instinctively, justice is something that we crave. If you got home and you found that you'd been burgled, you wouldn't just want your goods back, you'd want justice. And justice would be that the perpetrators of that crime were punished. When you look around the world and you see injustice in this world, and it stares you in the face, you say to yourself, don't you, who's going to pay for this? I hope they, someone's going to pay for this. Should child traffickers get away with it forever? Should slave traders get away with it forever? Who's going to hold these people to account? And the answer is God will. And the answer is, of course, if you look in the mirror, God will hold you to account and me to account. He will demand justice. But we also need to know that fused into God's character alongside justice is love and mercy. And as we search the scriptures, uh, you see that this is shaped in the cross. That is where love and justice meet. Now, the tone of this talk has been rather somber, hasn't it? And taken us onto territory where a, a little of this goes a long way. So let me say what needs to be said. It is an open door. There is a way through that door. God cries out for us to come into his company. And his message in telling this parable was not to frighten them silly and tell them to put their fingers in their ears and get ready for a judgment, but it was to come to me, come to me, come to me. Receive for love of the Lord. Receive the grace of the Lord. Tell people the good news there is a savior. Over the next three weeks, I'll be balancing this teaching out with three whole weeks looking at the parable of the prodigal son. But we need to see, we need to see this is not trivial, this salvation business. 
This is not trivial, the urgency with which Jesus is speaking. And part of the application for us is that we need to be motivated to share the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Not out of a guilt trip, because that'll never motivate you in the right way, but out of the fact that we want people to understand and to receive the love that God has for us. We want them to know that Jesus is the truth. We don't want to conceal for them what lies around the corner at a date unknown, but it will certainly happen. We don't want to be saying to Jesus, you need not have come because we think life will be just as good as if you'd never come. We need to find a way of communicating exactly what Jesus is communicating through this parable. And I don't believe that he said this parable harshly shouting at them, berating them, making them feel that high. I believe he said this parable with tears in his eyes, with frustration in his voice that he was so near Jerusalem and people wouldn't listen. I believe he said this parable with compassion overwhelming him and sort of able to say, look, you've seen I've healed people. I, I've raised people from the dead. What more do you want? I wish you'd come to me for salvation. But it wasn't his tactic to hide the truth from them. And it shouldn't be our tactic to run from the truth either. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak truth into our lives. And we pray, Lord, that something of the urgency of this parable would lodge in our hearts. We, we thank you for people who have taken time to share their lives with us, to speak truth into our lives, even when it wasn't easy for them to do that. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for unblocking our ears and our hearts that we could accept your truth. And we want to thank you, Jesus, for not concealing from us that life is short and there is a way into your company, but there's only one way through the cross. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would set us alight with your love. You would give us the compassion that Jesus had. And we've come to see more and more people come to enjoy you as a friend and you as a saviour and you as their Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.